Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 288. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Marvel Studios' Secret Invasion, episode four, Beloved, directed by Ali Salim and written by Brian Tucker. This series was created for television by Kyle Bradstreet and Secret Invasion is a Kevin Feige production. Before our review begins, want to let you know about Fan Show Plus. That is the podcast that is exclusive to premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or on Apple Podcasts if you search for the MCU Fan Show channel, or Fan Show Plus, you can find it there and subscribe to hear us talking about the latest updates as it pertains to Deadpool 3 and other MCU topics. Plenty of coverage there uh, available to you all if you go to patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I am doing very well, enjoying this beautiful weather we have right now in the Pacific Northwest. But uh, it's crazy because um, this episode is, I have to say, obviously the, this, the fourth episode of Secret Invasion is I'm going to go out and already say it. It's not It's not like it's a bad episode, but so far, probably my least favorite of the four, but it also has the most action of the four. Go figure. So, uh, you know, again, it's not a bad episode, but it's my least favorite so far. We have, we have some stuff to get into about it, but I'm curious what, if that's what you're, if you had a, if you had a rank, I'm not sure. I don't, you're not really a rank kind of person. So, but I, that's what I, I am at right now. This would be at my bottom. I think. Yeah. I, I generally try to avoid rankings at, at any and all costs. Although I do have my classifications of putting things in certain categories, obviously the Marvel that's masterpieces fair. and all of that stuff. But that's also just because I love collecting those cards as a kid, and it's a fun way to carry that the spirit of that forward. But as far as this episode, I would agree in the sense that it is my least favorite of the four, but in no way, shape, or form should that be taken as uh, any indication that this episode was bad, because the episode, it's just really a testament to how much I love the first three episodes, that this one didn't quite get to that level for me. I've mentioned over the past couple of weeks being a little worried about whether or not this show would hit a little bit of that wall. We've seen some of these Marvel Studios Disney Plus shows hit a little snag around episode three or four, and I was wondering if that might happen again with Secret Invasion, and I was happy to report that I didn't feel that way after episode three, and I don't feel that way about episode four, even though I didn't like this one quite as much as I liked the first three. As I said, it wasn't something where I would say this was a bad or even mediocre episode. I think there was still a lot of great stuff in this episode. And I think by itself, in a vacuum, I really don't have that many issues with this episode. It's really more of what certain things that happen in this episode, what they mean and how they affect the overall, the overarching narrative of the series. So, um, and what do I mean by that? Well, that's why we have a, a whole podcast we're about to do to really expand on that. But yeah, I think for this one, not, uh, not my favorite and, and yeah, least favorite, but again, that's only in comparison to the other three. And there are those three spoiler review podcasts that you can go back to and, and you can go back and listen to, 
to see or be reminded of just how much I loved those three episodes. So this one didn't quite reach those heights, but it still got close enough where I would say I would still give this series credit for being four for four. I mean, last week I said three for three with three home runs. Now it's four for four with three home runs and a double. Like it's still a solid episode in my view that did have a a really great action sequence. And I know that was one of the things that some people were wanting from this series, craving from this series. As much as we all love the intense emotional talking and all the dialogue and all those scenes that we've had over the first three episodes, I know some people wanted the series to, to really start Uh, upping the ante with respect to the action. I felt like that happened in a satisfactory way, for me anyway, at the end of this episode. And also some really compelling emotional drama. So I'm on board with this episode, Paul. In terms of, uh, let's go ahead and just keep beating our sports analogies to death, because we have another one coming up. Where You say it's your least favorite, but are you more along kind of what I'm talking about? Of That's based on the strength of the previous three, and you still feel like this was a solid hit, or do you feel like this was uh, a bit of a miss, maybe? No, I think it was a definitely, I think a, a ground rule double is probably my best analogy if we're going to mega sports or if we're using football. Yeah, yeah, ground rule double is solid. It was, yeah, it's, it's a solid. If it was football, I'd say it's a good, like, uh, it's like a five yards on first down, I'd say. <laughs> like, it's not. It, that's it's not, it's Watch, a, I'm going to I'm going to out sports nerd you with this one. <laughs> OK, this okay. is a ground rule double where you had a runner on first so he doesn't oh. get to score oh, as if it was a regular ooh. double that hadn't yeah. gone over the fence. He only gets to advance the two bases. <laughs> um, so instead of he only gets to go to third, does not get to advance all the way oh. home like he would have made it. He had the speed. He would have yeah. made it if the ball had not bounced <laughs> over the fence that's the ground rule double it's like the awesome that that's a double but kind of sucks that the run didn't get to score and now you really got to hope you can drive in that guy from third did i get it yeah oh you nailed it dude (laughs) yeah so you're running but yeah your runners are first to second or second and third and you have it's but it's two out so you can't get the oh we're we're going crazy here you know so um no i i think those are all it's all it's honestly i love using analogies because you're trying to you know you know project what your feelings out towards something it's hard to explain is is it the best right and i think that with something like this with a show or you know with art of any kind whether it be commercialized you know independent whatever it's just hard to articulate sometimes how you feel and i think with something like this with secret invasion it's again there's not controversy but it's just been interesting the reaction the lack of reactions and people are almost like demeaning secret invasion at least in my circles that i've, I've been on, on twitter you know, the show a little bit, be like, is anyone even talking about the show? And it's just interesting because when I when I watch this show, it is very good. I really I legitimately think so. And I've been definitely critical of the Marvel shows here or there. Um, and so I think I, I think me saying that should, should be should mean something. I really do. The problem is it's just not the most like, you know, jaw dropping thing. It's that slow burn. And when I, I say all that to this point where in the sh- in the series, we've got more of the action. It just was not it's structured a little, a little bit different than the previous ones. And it's not bad. It's just, it's a little bit different. It's shorter. So it compresses things a lot more. You're pushing the narrative yeah. even. It's you know, a, a very quicker. fast episode. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so again, not bad, but it's just some, one of those things where I think there are some sacrifices they made. And I think that 
and we'll get as we get in more spoiler territory, we'll dive more into why. But I think part, you know, we talked a little before the show. One of those reasons might be repetition in some ways. So, which I think is a definitely not the greatest thing. But we'll we'll get to that in, in a bit. But uh, yeah, not my. It's my least favorite episode, but it's not a detriment to the show. It just, I just after watching it, I didn't feel as, I just didn't feel as satisfied as I wanted to be. I'll just say that. Yeah. And there's a couple there's a couple decisions they made in the series or the show that I'm like after they built up, I was like, eh. so yeah, well, well obviously that thing is the first thing we'll probably get into, I assume. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stuff we'll have to say about the end of the episode, the beginning of the episode totally leans into it. So as we talked about last week of what exactly happened with Gaia, we la- we left the third episode with Gravik having sh- having shot her. And then it looks like she's dead. She's returned to to scroll form. We suspected some sort of fake out. You even said super scroll, which led me to saying extremis. And we talked about how the first shot was probably going to be that bullet wound healing. And Gaia is back and alive, except we got more than that. We got to see even cutting in with the flashbacks of her actually giving herself the extremis powers and everything like that. But I know uh, some people even reached out on on social media and very kind of you because I I don't think we're the only ones who called this. I think a lot of people saw it, Um, but I wasn't even necessarily thinking Super Scroll until you said it. So you threw the perfect pass and I just caught it uh, in the end zone and we just went from there. Or I caught it from like the one yard line and ran the rest of the way, just reached over. Sports analogies. Yeah, sports analogies. We are crushing it right now for everybody who's into sports and everybody who isn't. I am so sorry. But uh, but we're done now. We're we are as far as I know, we are done with any planned sports analogies in the show. But okay, even though we had the the relatively easy out, even though we had super scrolls and extremist powers and all and all of those things, and we we didn't expect that Emilia. And I think that's why a lot of people were just kind of suspicious of Gaia's death in the first place. Like, there's just no way. You brought in Amelia Clark to die in the third episode. Like nobody's really buying that, especially when Gaia hasn't even really had some of the bigger moments you would expect a character to have if you're going to bring in Amelia Clark to play them. And so I'm of two minds about this scene in that I'm fine with it because it totally works within the plot. And I also want to see more of this character and, and her story continuing in this series and perhaps beyond this series in the MCU. I'm totally on board from that perspective, but yes, this is, and I'll we'll expand on it more when we get to the end of the episode, but this is the kind of thing where when you keep doing this sort of stuff of like, this character's dead and this character's dead, but not really, and, and you walk these things back, you use them for the dramatic effect of a cliffhanger at the end of episode three, but then you undo it immediately at the beginning of episode four, this doesn't necessarily give the MCU the best relationship with death, and it doesn't necessarily give the audience the best relationship with death in terms of really being able to, how we know how we can know how we're supposed to feel. It's like we always have to wait for additional confirmation before we can really buy into it, which does kind of delay some of the dramatic effect and it can ultimately erode some of the dramatic effect in places. So it didn't necessarily it's not like everything unraveled for me in this scene. I don't want to overstate it, but it is just that issue of that's that's the downside of having of continuing to do things like this. It's not it's not out of pocket for them to do it or anything like that. It's not like there's no explanation for it. There clearly was and it makes sense within the plot of the story, but it's still 
just because it can make sense within your plot doesn't mean it doesn't have some adverse effects on how on the relationship that your stories have with death and also and therefore the relationship that the audience has with death inside of your stories. Yeah, I for me, it, it seems so obvious that the that that you're going to make her a super scroll because I said it last episode, I think, and, and we talked a little before that she's on the inside and she had walked through that whole, um, camp about super scrolls, like probably, you know, two, three times on the show at least before. And if you're going within the story, she's probably done it a million times. Right. So it only seemed obvious that she probably put herself that much in danger knowing she could live it, you know, live it out or whatever. So that to me was like obvious. And I like that. I like the Millie, I like the Millie Clark a lot. So I was, I was glad that to be right. And I'm not saying like, Oh, I'm so right. No, yeah. I'm, just, I'm glad, I'm glad she's still here, but maybe just don't kill her. I don't know. Or don't, yeah, don't know, pretend you did. Well, I think, how about this? And this is where, you know, decisions like this are probably not the, this is probably the weakest parts of the show to be quite honest is, some of the, and again, we'll get to, we'll probably go even deeper to this in a second, but this is definitely one of them is the whole death angle is definitely been, it, it's been used probably a little bit more than they probably should. Um, and I think, especially with cliffhangers, I think deaths, maybe not necessarily is the right word, probably the cliffhanger death. Yeah. I mean, we can call out the math right now, which I know we're going to get into with Talos at the end of the episode, but we're four episodes into secret invasion three of them have ended on a character death, yeah. one of which was undone at the beginning of the following episode, that being the one we're talking about now with Gaia, you know, supposedly, air quotes, dying at the end of episode three, and then right yeah. back to being alive at the beginning of episode four. So whether it's a death that sticks or a death that doesn't, there very clearly is a formula when it's three out of the first four that this is how you end the episode. There are other ways to have cliffhangers in spy in spy series than a character's got to die or not really die. Yeah, it definitely feels because you said one death's already been done, undone. Well, let's be real here. I, I don't think she's the only death that's going to be undone between the three. So <laughs> I'm, that's just my prediction. I could be wrong. I'll be I'll be shocked. I'll I will say this right now, Sean. I'll be shocked between Talos. Maria Hill and whoever dies between next week and the series finale. See, but that's exactly what I'm talking about, though. It's because right, yeah, the MCU regularly creates that space that even deaths that appear to be more absolute, like with Gaia, everybody kind of knew something was up or, or there was a, a strong likelihood that something was up. But even for situations like Talos, which I know jumping way ahead there, but uh, also with Maria Hill, I mean, we got very definitive visuals with Maria Hill in terms of the body lying still. And then we see her in the co and well, we don't actually see her in the coffin, but there's a coffin and we her mother is there to to pick up the body. And so we see we see that. And then, of course, with Talos, visually, these are the cues that we look for to say that a character has, in fact, died. But even in the MCU, we saw Fury look very dead, but oh, turns out it was a drug that he took to slow down his heart to like one beat every two minutes or whatever it was in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and he's not dead. And usually I've been the one who has uh, argued on behalf of the MCU when when this stuff has happened of, oh, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily that big a deal. It's not really happening that often. But now with this show, it's happening really often 
And I think, although, again, only one to date, only one character death has been undone. Now that they've undone Gaia's, though, I would say they really, I hope they're not undoing the death of Maria Hill or Talos, or I take that back. I really like Talos, so if he's still alive, great. But just the fact that we always, there's always that lingering question of, are they really gone when an MCU character dies? At some point, that's undercutting the impact of a character death. Like, even when it should be real and we should look at it as a real death and that character really is gone forever, we don't really process that loss as an audience in the same way that I think we should because there is always that element of doubt. And I think that the MCU needs to be careful with that because what I don't want to have about the MCU, but I feel, I sense it within myself that I'm starting to feel this way, I don't want to have the same level of cynicism about death in the MCU that I have in comic books. I love superhero comic books, Marvel and DC, but the running one of the running jokes in comic books is basically everybody's died and everybody's come back. Most of them have died multiple times and come back multiple times, right? So it's just a regular thing to where when a character dies in the comic books, we really just, okay, start the clock, set the timer for when we're going to get the relaunch of this character as they come back. I mean, there's a pretty famous one happening right now in Marvel Comics. So I think that I, I don't want the MCU to be that level where every time a character dies, I just kind of shrug it off and say, yeah, all right, you know, that that's a bummer that they're going to be on the bench for a while, but I'm not worried that they're going to be gone forever. I want to be able to have the dramatic reaction. Not that I'm not that I'm rooting for characters to die, but if you're going to go to that space in the storytelling, you got to be careful in, in preserving the, the meaning that that can have within the story and not always putting the audience in a position of feeling like, eh, it'll be all right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing for me is that I, because, you know, we're, we're you know, like, do you use a, the other company's uh, quote here from a film? I was bored in it. I was raised in it, you know, in, in, in comics. And, and you're, I'm just used to uh, resurrections as on the norm. Right. And so I, I was just thinking while you were talking about this, I kind of I'm on the opposite end of you a little bit as far as resurrection because I'm so used to these characters always figuring out how to come back or die or, or it's a fake out, et cetera, et cetera. I'm okay with it because the, the difference is at some point though, they have, they're, they're, it's going to stay dead for the most part. Let's just say that because, because the one difference we have here is that these, these are actors and actresses that are age and they don't always want to play that character. And they're, and, and the, I would say the not the nice thing, but the thing about it is that they can't keep recast. They've, they've already shown they're not going to recast it. So it's not like the comic books where they stay the same age because they just keep going. You know, th here they have the, there is some kind of infinite or a, a finite, I should say, uh, you know, way of, of a character in some way or another. And I think that's why we're seeing the le the legacy heroes like like a Captain America um, with Sam Wilson. So some of, some, some of my, um, some of, I do think that some of the ways that they could approach this could be, I don't mind, you know, using resurrection when they can. So I'm a little bit more forgiving of it than you, but at this point in the show, it's a, it's redundant. And yeah. that's the, that's my biggest criticism of the show. I think otherwise, 
you know, even lack of action, which I think you could look at as a criticism. I think it's not that bad. Even it's still a very entertaining, interesting show to watch. It doesn't need a lot of action. Um, but that's my biggest criticism so far of it. I would say it's probably not as action packed, slow burn. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a backhanded compliment you could say, but after that, I'd say this whole death thing is getting a little yeah. bit on, it's a little too on the nose and, and with secret invasion and, and uh, espionage, the whole fake outs, it, it could get, it's getting old a little fast. Yeah. I'm and that's what I'm, they, yeah, they really that, and that's really what I'm getting at. I'm not anti character return or no wait they're alive like i'm not against that as as a device that can be used occasionally i am okay with that i think it's it's where it lines up in this series that we have you know death especially with this particular sequence where we end episode four with a death when we literally started episode four with a resurrection of a death at the end of episode three like it's that it's because of how close these things are in proximity on this series where it's probably where I'm bumping up against it more so than I usually have in, in the past in the MCU. But in any event, um, there's a whole other rest of the episode to talk about. So character deaths aside, or until we get to the very end of the episode, uh, moving forward here, still, again, just big takeaway from that is I'm happy that Guy is back. I'm happy that Amelia Clark is here in the MCU, and now she's a super scroll. So obviously that has implications for this series and going forward, which obviously we will get into as those events transpire. But after the present day update that Gaia is in fact still alive, we flash back to Paris in 2012 in the uh, short term aftermath of uh, the Battle of New York, where we see Priscilla is waiting on Fury. And I like that she's talking about as she's praising Nick Fury here. You know, she credits him for she knew somebody had to have the vision to bring all those heroes together. Somebody had to assemble the Avengers. And that was Nick Fury, as we saw in phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And she even talks and it's important that I think she credits Nick Fury. And also she speaks to what that means about Nick Fury, of him believing that home is worth fighting for, that the weak are worth protecting. And I know we'll we'll get into um Raymond Carver's late fragment, which is uh, spoken in this scene and then comes back later on in the episode. But this moment from Priscilla crediting what Nick Fury did in the Avengers and everything he had been doing as we saw it unfold in phase one of the MCU, I think it's very important. And as much as I talk about how that was critical of death in terms of the structure, the pacing of this series, this was an important moment, I thought, and a worthwhile moment to have this scene Because what happened at the end, or not at the end, but what happened during episode three, it was Talos deconstructing a little bit of the myth of the the legend of Nick Fury. I don't think he completely unraveled it, but he spoke some truth there of Nick Fury is the super spy, but he had a whole lot of help. And it was my friends and I who really helped him. um, And Talos rightfully took credit for whatever they had done. But as I mentioned last week, just because Talos and the Skrulls helped in very big ways and a lot of big spots for Nick Fury, most of which we never actually saw in the MCU, we should be well aware as an audience that just because the Skrulls were invaluable in helping Nick Fury doesn't mean they necessarily helped him with everything. And it doesn't mean that Nick Fury wasn't the legend or super spy that we believed him to be because we saw evidence of that with the actions we witnessed in the MCU. So to see Priscilla give that perspective and also give that reminder of, hey, whatever we 
took away from Nick Fury last week, which I still ultimately don't believe was all that much. Everything you saw is still true. And here's what that here's one perspective on what that what Priscilla views is what that means or what that says about him. And it says a lot of the things that we felt it was saying about him and why we cared about Nick Fury and his journey in the MCU. So while saying that Nick Fury doesn't deserve all of the credit last week, it's still worth having the reminder of, yeah, but he still deserves a ton of credit. And that's what he gets in this scene. So I, I really appreciated that. And again, I, I like that it wasn't just about, hey, that's impressive that you brought them together. It's what it really means about Nick Fury and what he believes with the whole home is worth fighting for, the weak are worth protecting. All of that stuff I, I thought was really great. So I love this flashback scene. Yeah, I, I liked I liked seeing the flashback scene a lot. We'll get to the other thing here in a second. Um, I, I liked seeing how the their interactions of just how, and again, you, you see from the you know from that part to to now, and just to uh, just again, just anyone who's been in a long term relationship understands the, the dynamics of how things change over time, and we're seeing them from the very beginning to like kind of the middle to like how things are, 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 you know, kind of like how things are going and now how they started, how they're going, if you will. Um, I love, I love those, uh, I love those uh, tweets and whatnot. So or memes, but uh, it was, it was cool to see them kind of interacting and how they do that in public. Cause again, like Nick Fury has to be very careful of what he does. And I wanted to bring this up last week too. And, I, and I, maybe I'm just being too dumb about it, but shock to anyone else out there but um you know what we think about winter soldier and the part when like fury's been like you know he's like uh me and my wife had a fight last night you know and i'm like Mm -hmm. oh he's talking about priscilla (laughs) so um i I thought about that i'm like man so it's there must be there has to be some kind of familiarity with him having a wife for him to use that publicly in that moment in winter soldier. And it's interesting when you look at the scene now, um, when he, when, from 2012 and he's sitting there, that's the year, right? 2012. It says, um, yeah, 2012 yeah. is the, uh, the, the scene in Paris. So yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, that, and I mean okay. the, it's still headline news, the battle of New York in the, as we see in the, right. the newspaper there. So yeah, this is, I mean, probably within days of, uh, of the battle okay. of New York. Yeah, so you you had that part where they're still kind of not necessarily being public about it, but but it's public enough for for Nick to admit it to Cap for people who are listening. It's just interesting that they still. It's like I don't. I'm curious if that was really the intention, though, when he says my wife threw me out, and even Steve says I didn't know you had a wife, and he said, and then Fury says just my friends. And so I'm not sure. I mean, for Nick Fury now, we assigned the the double meaning there of like, okay, sure. who really knew that Nick Fury had a wife and Talos would have been a friend at that time who would have known. But I mean, let's... But Priscilla calls him Nick in a few minutes later. Yeah, in, in, which is fine. But I mean, but when she's talk, when Fury is saying just the just my friends that I'm talking about is when he's saying like, I didn't know you had a wife or whatever. So sure. Right. right, right. I think I don't know how widely it was known. And, and I also look when they wrote the Winter Soldier and they shot know, it and put it out know, in 2014. I, I don't think <laughs> that Marcus and McFeely, you know, the writers, Christopher Marcus, Steve McFeely, the, the directors, Joe and Anthony Russo. I don't think they knew that one day Nick Fury really was going to get a, a wife in the MCU. The MCU is usually five to seven years ahead, not nine. 
So well, I'm not sure no, right. that they would have had that. But now it does take on a it now it certainly takes on that new meaning. I, I don't think it, I still think it would have been maybe a handful of people at most that knew Nick Fury had a wife. And and really, I think Fury was just saying that because he knew the room was bugged and he was just throwing out whatever. I think it was mainly the intention of the fair. scene. I, I don't That's think he fair. was trying to reveal to Steve, hey, I got a wife. No, no, I know. I agree with that part. I, that's what I'm saying is that I thought the way he's keeping it secret and that it seems like he would be it, it would be, like you said, like more pri- even more private because he doesn't even yeah. he oh, he lives with her. But yet it, like because I'm going back to the show now, not even to that winter. Yeah. Soldier well, part, when they're out in public, they don't really embrace each other. They don't act as if they're romantically involved. Right. Like they're, right. they're not letting the world see that. It's just two people having dinner together. It's it's yeah it's just it's interesting it's just, it's interesting that whole dynamic which again I, I like this scene a lot this is one of my my more I'd say I would say Fury and Priscilla's um, interactions and their chemistry together has definitely been a huge strength of the show for me even as we get to the next part I, I that to me has been like them him and Talos have been I think the strength and why I really like the show so much. I mean, if you're, I, I love Samuel Jackson. Anything. I mean, you put him in anything. I'm gonna watch it. It's reality. Um, but it's really cool to see him and, and Priscilla interact together and really be a strength of the show. Because that's the thing I would say that maybe the MCU hasn't done a ton yet of is like building on like this romantic relationship but kind of based around and have it like it's just kind of see it from that perspective we see people have relationships but it seems more of a really a real emphasis between two people who have who love each other but there's a lot of complications it's just we haven't really seen a lot of that like as like as like a a prime, at least for that off the top of my head, anyway. Uh, oh, a prime vision had focus. a pretty good one. Well, what we, we obviously one vision was like is a goat. You know, it's a you know, great one, of the greatest of all time, the MCU, in my opinion. But besides that, there has been a lot. And um, and again, I think I, I think that's a strength of both one vision and the show. You know, proving my point that like I think this is like a very, it's really cool to see these dynamics. And I'm not like a love story guy necessarily. I'm a, I'm a realist. I like seeing real relationships and real situations. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love superhero comics and, and movies is that when you have this, when you add that dynamic, that relatability. I mean, like, because I do really look at their relationship as like very much a real relationship. But it's obviously way more complicated than even. Well, we and, and I think what have. makes it better to do that, what makes Nick Fury not necessarily better, but what makes it so interesting to explore something like this with Nick Fury is, as he points out later on in the episode, like, yeah, he's the last guy who should have a relationship because exactly relationships yes. are about being open, about being present, about trust. Nick Fury can't trust anyone. He's not going to be open really with anyone or so we would think. And even being present, he's gone most of the time off saving the world. So a lot of the elements that you would need to have for a relationship to be. And when I say present, not just physically present, it's not like Nick Fury is calling home at the end of every day, at least as far as we know. So there's really not a lot of the a lot of the things that you would consider to be the the foundation of a good and healthy relationship. A lot of that stuff can't really exist with Nick Fury. And he even talks, he outlines that, which we'll get to later on in the episode of how much of a struggle it was and how every instinct was to not do it. But he couldn't help himself because he genuinely loved and cared about her. Uh, But now I'm jumping too far forward. Let's get to them reciting uh, Raymond Carver's late fragment, which is uh, that conversation that they're talking about. And did you, did you get what you want, uh, or did you get and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, 
I did, and what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And I think that's really, I, I love the selection of that. And when we think about the meaning, it's it's very true to the relationship of Priscilla and Nick Fury, because it is, they are each other's beloved, and they are the ones making each other feel beloved on this earth. So there is that delivery, but also knowing what we know about Priscilla and how she's a scroll and how she is part of this mission. And she's not totally on board, obviously, with everything Gravik wants to do, but she is in in touch with Gravik via Rava, who is that's the name of the scroll that has assumed the identity of Rhodey right now. That what we see there is they talk about being home in their own skin, and that's part of what they're doing, trying to be beloved on the earth. Well, right now the scrolls can't possibly feel that way. And that's part of what they're trying to achieve. And of course, there are very different views, very different uh, philosophies on how exactly they are supposed to go about achieving that. But I I thought that was a really interesting thing. You could see where Priscilla, or where, and of course, scroll named Vara, you could see where she really connected with that um, as a scroll, but also in this romantic relationship with Nick Fury. So that part I thought was really great. But then as we see that Priscilla has been remembering this scene, she's been remembering this moment from the present day inside of St. James Church, which is where we heard Rhodey's voice tell her to meet up in an hour at the end of last week's episode. So Rhodey's scroll shows up and orders Priscilla to kill Fury. And uh, when Priscilla resists, Rhodey informs her that one of them, Fury or Priscilla, is catching a bullet today. Doesn't really matter to Rhodey Scroll which, uh, which of the two is going to catch that bullet. And I like that Priscilla in this moment is still trying to save Nick Fury. I mean, you could fairly question whether or not this is also a performance because you could say that Priscilla already knows that Fury suspects something is up with her and therefore... She could reasonably suspect that Fury might be listening on this, uh, listening in on this conversation. Spoiler alert, he is. But I still don't really doubt that this is genuine in terms of Priscilla's attempt to save Fury. And how is she trying to do that? She's trying to convince Rhodey Skrull that Fury doesn't need to be killed anymore, that Fury is broken at this point. He's not a threat to them. He's not a threat to their mission. There's just no need to kill him. They can just leave him be. He's not the one that was uh, in, in the, the one who was in, indispensable to us is gone, she says, which is that's the real heartbreak for Nick Fury. It's not hearing that Priscilla is now in league with Gravik or any other potential scrolls. It's that this has been going on for a long time, that this has been a long con. This has been a play for some of the scrolls on Nick Fury for some indefinite period of time. But obviously, it's been uh, quite a long time, maybe from the very beginning of their relationship. That's the part about this that I think is so heartbreaking for Nick Fury to uh, to realize, but still there is some part of Priscilla that I think genuinely loves and cares about Nick Fury because she is trying in her own way to save him of saying he's just it, it sounds insulting for her to say all these things, but what she's really trying to do is just not kill him. This this is her form of saving Nick Fury's life of pretending as if his life is no threat to to her or to Rhodey Scroll or anyone else. And so I, I like that she's at least trying to do that. A couple other notes on the scene. And I, I really like this Rhodey Scroll and the way Don Cheadle is is leaning into this because here's 
a version of Rhodey where this Skrull doesn't have to pretend who she is. And so she can be a lot more of whatever her own personality is. And I feel like that's being injected into the performance. I think we saw more of it. We saw some of it in the second episode in that conversation with Fury and little pieces of it here and there. But the more we isolate this character, the more we get to see more of their personality and how that's we know that's very different from the Rhodey that we know in the MCU. Uh, just And so I like this sinister version of Rhodey or the scroll Rhodey. Um, although one note on the scene, Undertaker was not known for DDTing people off the top rope, not necessarily an Undertaker move. But other than that, um, I was I was pretty on board with this scene, especially uh, the what Priscilla was trying to do to try and save Fury. Okay, I, I don't want to jump too much ahead. I, I like, first of all, I just love the Priscilla character. I, I really do. I don't know if I am on board completely with Priscilla still working against Fury all this time. I'm just, I, I don't know if I love it. If, if I'm very conflicted on this uh, and how they've done it so far. Because this, because part of me, before we get to the next part, some of this conversation because we knew it was bugged. I mean, and I think she knew it was bugged. I almost, it almost felt like I'm, I was thinking, is she really working the whole, again, I'm going whole fake out here, Sean, or, 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 or I'm, I'm leaning totally into this whole espionage thing. Right. Like I'm actually a triple agent. It's like, God damn it. You know, um, that whole idea. But the thing is for me, I thought the, what she was responding to roadie scroll, it felt like she was trying to get even more information out of him. So, so Nick Fury could hear it. Um, that's how I interpreted the scene. Cause I knew, cause I'm like, nah, I'm like, nah, this Priscilla loves Fury. We got this. Okay. Which is, you know, let's just, it's not, it's not fake out too much, you know, cause we all know what's going on. Even she's not dumb, you know, whatever. So I liked all this. It definitely felt like that. For yeah. me, anyway, well, how, that's if how she I was trying to get information out of Rhodey, she didn't do a very good job because she didn't really ask any questions. So, like, I don't, I don't really well, know that that was her objective. I, it, I don't. No, I, it wasn't. It, yeah. I, obviously, that's what I'm saying. It, that's why I, I. That's how I interpreted it because I don't like this angle of her always working for the scrolls. That's what I'm. I, I, I didn't really buy why. into it. Yeah. Or I could. I had. I was forced to buy into. No, it. No, I. I'm on board with it. But here's the reason I'm on board with it, because Fury had his own separate angle, too. And I think that is something that you can't really take away from their relationship in that. How did their relationship start? Yes, they they talked through the technicalities of my unit doesn't exist and therefore I don't technically work for you. But also at the same time, she kind of did. And so the scrolls were serving some benefit and some purpose for Nick Fury the entire time. And so, and that is part of, and that informs a relationship between Nick Fury and Vara, regardless of whether or not either of them wants to admit that, regardless of whether or not that was the main driving force in their relationship. And so it's only fair that if Nick Fury had an agenda with the Skrulls, of which Vara was undeniably part, if he had his own agenda for the Skrulls, it's not out of line for Vara and the and the Skrulls to have their own agenda for Nick Fury. And I think that's what actually makes their relationship a little bit more impressive and, and more meaningful. But I'll save that for when we get to the next scene between uh, between the two of them 
together. So leaving this scene, again, Priscilla has her orders. She's supposed to go off and kill Nick Fury, and, and we'll see what happens with that in just a moment. But uh, before that, we cut to uh, outside of a plane. Gravik is planning an attack. We see Pagan is there, thinking it's a problem that Gaia is not present. But of course, Gravik informs Pagan that he found the mole, and it's no that Gaia was the mole, and it's no longer a problem. He has taken care of it. Interesting that Pagan is there because that was the we saw the identity that Pagan was supposed to assume on the file that he held in episode three on board that submarine. So did the the scrolls switch assignments or was Pagan not necessarily captured? Or even if he was, he's a scroll. He assumes a different identity and he walks out of wherever he was captured. So I'm not really that worried about how Pagan was able to get back to. Uh, was able to get back to Gravik or, or any of that. The main point from that scene is we know they're planning an attack and they want to make sure it looks like they are Russians who are carrying out this attack that we will see later on in the episode. The next scene we get is a reunion between father and daughter, between Talos and Gaia. And he, she wants to know at this point, she's no longer going along with Gravik. She's there with her father because she feels like that is where she belongs, but she wants to know what is Talos's plan. And he says his plan is, first thing, is that Talos, Gaia, and Fury take down the insurgency, and then, based on the goodwill of that, they'll have a chat with the president to try and secure an amnesty for the, scroll, the million scrolls who remain on Earth. And when Gaia tries to say that's not necessarily going to work and they're having this debate over what their options are. Talos's point is that they are a people without a planet and therefore depend on the goodwill of their hosts. And all they got to do is keep showing the people who they are, show their show people their hearts. They will see us is what Talos says to Gaia, who responds with you are delusional. That's not who we are. And that's not who I've become. And she walks away from Talos. So I like this scene on a few different levels. I, I like it in in the sense that for Gaia as a character, I like that as she's broken away from Gravik and she's broken from his approach, his philosophical approach to how he's trying to secure a home for the scrolls. It doesn't mean that she now automatically aligns with her father's worldview. It's not as if there are just there are we are limited to, to uh, limited to two points of view for scrolls. There's only two. Either you have, uh, either it's make sure the humans kill all of each other and take over the world, or it's save the humans and just kind of hope for the best. Gaia is, she hasn't necessarily spoken, I don't even know if she's fully formed her opinion or her philosophy of how she wants to go about this, but obviously she feels the two, the two warring philosophies that we've seen in this show, that neither one, is really adequate, and there will have to be something else uh, that Gaia will probably feel like she needs to do. What is that? We'll have to catch up with her on a subsequent episode, and of course, we will have to see how she responds now that Gravik has actually killed Talos, or so we would think, based on the the very end of this episode. But I like this because even from even from the Talos perspective of the scene. It is a bit too optimistic. It is, I mean, not to be overly cynical, but whether we're looking at in the world of the fictional world of the MCU or the real world examples that what Talos is hoping for, it doesn't always work. It's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as it should be of show everyone your heart, show them your kindness and your compassion, and you will be treated in kind. 
it doesn't always work that way. And so that's why it's quite natural for someone like Gaia to feel like that's probably not the way it's it's ultimately going to work for us. We can't we have to do more than just hope for that because we know there's a good chance that we won't experience that. Or even if a lot of humans do feel that way, there will still be resistance amongst other humans that are going to cause problems. So as you talked about uh, before, Paul, it is some of the the mutant debates and stuff like that of, uh, of Xavier and Magneto that we've seen in X-Men, but that's because these are very relevant themes that have very obvious real-world parallels, and that's why they can come up in these types of stories. And I, I really do like this because it doesn't necessarily say that it's you want to believe in the optimism that Talos expresses, but you also can very easily see where Gaia feels that's that's nice and that's a good place for your heart to be. But we need more than that in terms of a plan in order to make sure we have a home for ourselves. So and as I said, it I, I love that it's not so simple that they continue to treat it as complex. It's not as simple as it's this or that it's Gravik or Talos. There's probably a need for something else. And, and we'll see if Gaia is going to be the one who ultimately gets to define that and, and whether or not she's successful in that regard. I, I really like how they're building this new character, Gaia. And she's definitely, I mean, she was introduced in the comics like recently, but she's obviously an MCU creation first. And then they're introducing her in the, in the, in the 616 comics, you know, currently. Uh, I like this different version or I like this this in, interpretation of someone in the middle between Gavik and Talos. And I think you're setting up um, this to me, because to me, my prediction is this. I think Talos, you know, Talos probably is dead. That's my, that's my interpretation. I don't think Maria Hill's dead. I think Talos is dead because I think the, the difference is that now Talos's legacy can live in Gaia and have that good natured, you know, still like understanding like where the the dynamics they are are dealt, but also a realist, which is more of what Gavik is, I would say, compared to maybe say Talos is, um, at least in my interpretation of the two characters. I think Gaia represents that idea where the scrolls will probably have to leave Earth, especially after the show, because now with 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 Gravik going out there. Uh, I apologize if I just called him Gavik, by the way. Um, Gravik, um, you know, going out there and being a super scroll, we see in this episode, and then in later episodes, I assume for the world, there she's going to realize we can't stay on Earth. So we're probably going to get her be that representation of the leadership of the scroll army. They talked about, I think there was rumors of her being even being the queen, which I again I don't remember the show ever mentioning there's a, a scroll queen uh and an armada out there as well i don't remember um i think maybe they did i don't remember but either way i think she could be that leadership um there's been there's rumors that she was playing the queen at some point um maybe that could happen here where she becomes that new leader that who is that kind of again that i always use this analogy again i love analogies uh but it's not a sports analogy sean this is the my three little bears uh or my, goylocks and three bears excuse me uh where there's, there's hot bear mama bear and baby bear and baby, baby bear is always just right and it feels like she's that baby bear where it's just just right it's the perfect mix of both those people and i think that that'll be interesting because now she's a super scroll she's got power to back up her words so i think you're going to see her probably take ownership of the scroll nation, if you will, which I hate saying nation behind things, by the way, um, the scroll people, I should say. Um, and I think you're going to see her probably be 
you know, tell the world in Earth, and maybe this sets up mutants, right? Where she says to them, you aren't ready for scrolls because if we exist, we will be we will be uh, threatened because no one will feel safe with us. Even if we, you know, we, we do everything we, we, we can do, we, we, we can do so much for you and you still will be ungrateful and you, you still will, will fear us and hate us because we are we have slightly more power than you do or whatever. Right. And again, I don't we don't we we know why that'd be scary. We I understand that part of it. But the problem is that, you know, there is an acceptance at some point. And I think that that could also set up mutants too a little bit, Sean, because, you know, or foreshadowing, you could say mutants, because her saying that, like, we can't stay here because you guys are just are are just not ready. People on this earth are not ready to accept people that are different. And and those themes are amazing because they are unfortunately true. And I think that that's that's I love themes and moralities in my stories. I don't always need them. But I think in something like this it's always good to have that. And especially like really a, a point that needs to drive home today that people are different and you have to accept that. And if you can't like people are going to, you know, they will abandon you <laughs> if you, if you exclude everyone around you. Right. So I, that's my prediction. And I think the scene sets up a, a great example of where, where I think that's why I think it, that's why I think that. And I think it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. We'll see if I'm right. But yeah, I I liked Guy's character, and I like the fact that she's not just you know a goody goody. Oh, you're right, Dad. I have to adopt all of your personalities and, and your traits. Right. It's, it's a real it's a realistic approach. Yeah, I think it is. She is the mix between Talos's relentless optimism and Gravik's relentless pessimism, and you know she'll find she'll try to strike some balance and, and figure out that neither one of these is working. Because also, by the way, she. What she says to Gravik before he shoots her at the end, like, are you really, you know, by paraphrasing, but asking like he's really the hero who's really to save all the scrolls, or is he the one dooming all of them? Because just pushing the scrolls into a war with mankind, I mean, Gravik just assumes he'll win, but not necessarily thinking about how many people will be lost, how many scrolls will be lost in that pursuit, and just signing up, signing it up for everybody, you know, the whole uh, being a statesman versus being a soldier conversation between Gravik and Talos during last week's episode. And so, yeah, I think giving Gaia her own perspective while also using that to demonstrate that there are more than two approaches and there will need to be more than two approaches in order to solve the challenges that the Skrulls currently face. But now going back at home with Fury and Priscilla and Fury is not wearing his ring. And I like that shot that just kind of lingers on Priscilla seeing the ring still left behind in the tray because she knows what that means. And then what follows is these characters kind of pretending that they're not about to have the conversation that they both know they have to have. It starts out very pleasant of, oh, did your, you know, your ring, your finger swell up? You're not wearing your ring. Oh, I came in the back way. No big deal. Do you want some tea? I really love just the false pretense of this scene because I I think what it suggests is both characters really know the conversation that they have to have. They know that conversation effectively is the end of their relationship. So if they can just buy themselves this one last minute of pleasantries together, 
they're going to go ahead and they're going to lean into it. They know it absolutely will not last. Priscilla already knew it before she entered the house because of what her assignment actually is right here. But what it meant, though, for Fury, when she sees that ring there, is Fury knows, too. Everybody knows. Both parties know what's about to happen, even if they don't know what the end result is going to be in terms of which of the two of them will be alive. They both know what's facing them. And yeah, they, they put off that conversation for just a few seconds to try and enjoy each other's company. And then it's time to come out with it. And Fury talks about how of all the crazy things he's done in his life, he says that to Priscilla, you are by far and away the greatest mistake. I lost all my reason to be your husband, ignored every signal in my head, heart, and body that screamed stop. But Fury also says if he had it to do over again, he still wouldn't do anything different. Even knowing now that she is there to shoot him with that gun she has under the table, she's there to kill him, and he knew the whole time, not necessarily... He didn't know exactly what Vara slash Priscilla intended to do, he, but he knew because he's Nick Fury and who he is and the fact that he's not the most trusting person, all of his instincts would say, don't get into this relationship, but he could not stop himself. Again, lost all his reason to be her husband because he really wanted to be her husband because he really felt like that was worth it. And he is saying right here that it was worth it. That for knowing everything he knows now, knowing that her relationship with him started under this false pretense, knowing that now this may be this relationship may ultimately result in him being killed by her, even with knowing all of that, he doesn't have any regrets and he is still happy that he did this. He wouldn't actually change it. And with that revelation, then the guns are out on the table. And he gets to ask about Priscilla and where she came from. And Dr. Priscilla Davis was somebody who had a congenital heart defect. And presumably, in order to have access to her, presumably Vara was uh, was a, a duplicate of somebody had assumed a shell, assumed an identity of somebody taking care of her. And then when the human Dr. Priscilla Davis was within, within hours of her death, that was when Vara asked her if she could assume Priscilla's identity, and Priscilla agreed to it, because really what, as uh, as Vara says, the way she put it to the human Priscilla was asking her if she wanted to fall in love. And so the human Priscilla, before she passed, gave Vara permission to assume her identity on three conditions. One, that Vara bury her at sea, which she did, that she continued to be a daughter to Priscilla's parents, which Vara did. And that Vara would never hurt you, never hurt Nick Fury. Um, that was the promise that she didn't get to keep. And she says, uh, I'm sorry, darling. I loved all of that. And and I thought the whole buried her at sea in terms of that condition. I'm like, OK, how did nobody know that that Priscilla, the human Priscilla was gone? Well, that explains that. So and it also shows that it wasn't Vara taking it upon herself to be deceptive, that she had some permission and all of that. So I'm, I'm good with that backstory and she also mentioned that she felt like that was an identity that would slip past fury's defenses so there was intention in exactly the identity that uh that vara slash then became priscilla and the, the identity that she assumed and then the two characters recite late fragment together and as they end it 
Shots are fired, shots are missed, and Fury says he doesn't know if this means they should get divorced or renew their vows. I really like the symbolism of, of this scene that they each shot past each other intentionally. It's point-blank range, so there's no accident here. Neither one of them, both of them were willing to be killed by the other, and they were not going to harm the other, um, is really the message there. But also the symbolism for Fury with the shot that he fires he shoots into the eye of one of the masks of the that are behind Priscilla on the wall. And I really love that because it is just kind of symbolizing like that mask has come down. That mask has been peeled back. It's been taken away. And now he is seeing because now they are being true, entirely truthful with each other for the very first time. There is that mask that has been uh, that has been removed between the two of them. Um, and then but again, there's nowhere to go from here. The relationship is, as far as we can tell, over, although I wouldn't be, I wouldn't rule out a reunion at any point. But Fury does warn her, they'll be coming for you, they being the Skrulls, being Skrull Rhodey, Gravik, presumably. Farah says, slash Priscilla, I'm a big girl, I can take care of myself. And then she asked that question of, would Fury have ever loved her if she'd never changed and been her true self? And Fury says that again, Fury says, guess we'll never know. And that's the end of the scene. I thought, Paul, this scene was was great. I thought it was beautifully heartbreaking in all the ways that it should be. Because and as I mentioned before, when you said you didn't necessarily like the Vara's intentions as Fury's wife from the beginning and being part of this scroll agenda, I don't have a problem with it. Because as I said, on one level, Fury had his own agenda but I also think the other way that it really works for me is that this is kind of the relationship that Nick Fury would have. Nick Fury is a guy who exists in lies and deception and is some way, I'm not saying he absolutely loves it, but on some level, he has to be comfortable in this space. There is some, there's probably some part of Nick Fury or a large part of Nick Fury that's always been more comfortable uh, living amongst lies and deception because that probably feels more natural to him since he spends more time in that space than he does in anything that's really genuine or sincere. But I think where I like this as a love story for Nick Fury, the super, the human super spy, and Vara, who we could call a Skrull super spy, I like that out of all the lies, out of all, out of all the deception there was a true love that still happened between the two of them against all odds, against every instinct, against every intention that they might have had going into it against all. And as Fury said, lost all reason. And even for Vara, she would have known going into this. Nick Fury is a mission. I am here to have this let it make him feel like he has someone he trusts, make him feel like he's in a relationship and he has a spouse but she actually fell for him too. There was this real love that happened even amongst all of the lies, even amongst all of the deception, which I really like. And I do think that's probably the kind of relationship, if Nick Fury was ever going to have any sort of marriage, this was probably the kind that he was destined to have. And so I, I really love it. I think it's a perfect fit for the character. I think it's great to show where the, where the truth was able to, some truth was able to come out and persevere through all of the lies. And the truth of that love is the way they each saved each other's life, knowing that it might result in that was the trust for all the lies. The trust was there. That was the leap they both took in that I'm not going to hurt you. And I don't know whether or not you're going to hurt me, but it doesn't really matter because I love you. So I'm not going to be the one to hurt you. I'm not going to be the one to take your life. 
and they both ended up making the exact same decision. If I were going to acknowledge a fair criticism of this, you could say that, yes, all of this is extremely manipulative within the storytelling in order to very quickly gain the investment of the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we just found out about this relationship at the end of episode two. Here we are ending it by the middle of episode four. So basically an episode and a half's worth and just a, really a few scenes between the two characters, counting flashbacks, about a handful of scenes between these characters. So they did a lot of work very, very quickly And if you, as a viewer, don't buy it, I get that. Like, I would not fault anybody for looking at this and saying, you know what, it's too much. It's trying to communicate too much without actually doing enough and spending enough time with these characters and their relationships. So if somebody doesn't buy it, I get that, and I would totally, totally understand and and certainly not begrudge them their opinion on that. But I have to say, this worked for me. This relationship worked for me. It is on the strength of the writing and really the strength of the performances. So credit to Samuel L. Jackson and Charlene uh, Woodward. I think they just crushed it in all of these scenes. Yes, it's only a handful of them, but they made each and every one of those scenes count. And so I felt it. I felt in a very short amount of time, I felt the connection between the two of them. And as I said, it is a complicated connection, but still very, very real to them. And I felt it being real for them through these scenes, including this one. So I really loved this scene. I, I thought it was great. I totally understand if you might have a more cynical, anyone who might have a more cynical point of view of it, totally, totally get that. And Ordinarily, that might be my approach to it, but somehow it got through this. Somehow this romance got through to me and I bought it even with just this handful of scenes. And I think a lot of that, as I said, credit to the writing, but I really, really have to give maybe even just a bit more credit to the performances because, again, that's mm-hmm. what the performances are what superseded the amount of screen time this got, the amount of dialogue that it got. It was the it was the performances on the actors faces and what they were able to communicate about what they were feeling, what these characters were feeling about one another. So I'm going to say when Fury says, I don't know if we should get a divorce or renew our vows. That's essentially how I feel like summed up. I don't know if I love this or I hate this or not, or I don't like it. It's weird. Um, On the level of what, how you explain why you understand why people wouldn't get this. That's kind of where I'm at, to be honest. Um, and I think, but that goes, it's again, a credit to, I think the writing too of the interaction between these two characters and the performances of the chemistry of Nick Fury and Priscilla. And I, I'm a little bummed out that it's kind of explained this way because I just don't, I just don't feel that that would happen. I, I don't know. Like, like on, on the surface, I'm just like, nope, I, it's hard for me to buy this, but in the interactions, and the performances, I buy it. If that makes any sense on, on paper, I'm like, Nope. See it on screen. I'm like, okay, I can get, I, I, yeah. I don't, I, that's what it is. Yeah. We're really not that far apart on this. Like I know in my okay. head how manipulative this is and I shouldn't be buying it, but that's what storytelling does though. It does manipulate our emotions. Now they can, there are, you could argue there are better ways to do it. There are ways that can take more time uh, for things to kind of develop as an audience member. And I totally get, and I generally agree with all of that. It's just in this instance, 
that's what that's what can happen when you have a couple of great actors, though. They can take something that ordinarily you could think of all the rational reasons why it shouldn't necessarily click and they can make it click. They can make it work. I mean, that's what great actors do is they take what's on the page and they elevate it. They give you way more than what's on the page. And, and I, that's what happened here. And that's that's what supersedes anything else. The the amount of screen time, the the deception and, and whatever, like I buy this largely because of the the performers who are selling it. Yeah, I for me, I, I just it. I don't like the fact that they're kind of ending, they're kind of quasi ending the relationship. Like, I mean, and look, we all know Nick Fury has a very unique relationship if he ended up having a significant other. And I think that is where I understand and can buy into yeah. it. Well, they, I, they may still renew the vows. You don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they leave it. They obviously leave it in a certain way. I, I just feel that for as long as they've been together and there's a genuine love that was, which in my opinion, the way I perceive the, the writing and the performances of the character, Sean, and to the audience here, I perceived Priscilla as someone who wouldn't even consider of killing Nick and like, and just, and not telling him a little bit more of what's going on. And again, it feels contrived a little bit, the whole manipulate. And again, manipulation is a good word of trying to manipulate that into the show for an extra layer. Whereas I think the layer of Nick Fury being in a relationship with a scroll is fascinating and interesting in and of itself. I don't know if I needed this extra angle necessarily to add extra drama because in my opinion, you didn't need it. I think you've already had it. And I think them working together adds a layer of the complication. I don't, I didn't, I, but again, I liked what we got from those two performances and that's why I don't, I don't not like F this, you know, but I will say, I do think it was not, that was not the strongest, I think, creative decision of the show. So my least favorite episode might be, it just might be one of the reasons why. So just throw it out there. But otherwise I liked the outcome is, is fine. I guess I, I just want, I'll be honest. I'm a softy at heart. I guess, Sean, I just want to see him back together at the end of the series and just going off in the spaceship and sunset. So if that makes, I know it's not a sunset, you know? What I'm yeah. Well, I mean, they still could. I mean, even if it doesn't happen by the end of this show, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a love between the two of them. So for as long as they're both still around, uh, the possibility of them getting back together is there. Even Fury's line about, I guess we'll never know in terms of whether or not he would have loved her had she not changed. I don't take that as Fury being like, I don't, that, that's not a thing of Fury. That's not a dig from Fury. That's not a, it's not Fury trying to say, I don't actually love you or, or any of those things. I think it's Fury just kind of being honest in the sense that, well, we can't know because that wasn't the life we lived, but there was still this real love between the two of them. Even if it started under a false pretense, it still became real because obviously they were together for long enough that, and even deep down, Vara believes that it was real because, and it was real for her too, because of the decision they make to both miss on the shots that they fire. So somewhere the, the real her somehow came through in the relationship and she felt like it had, and she felt like, she had been beloved on this earth. They both felt that way and felt like they got that from each other. Somehow that happened, despite their relationship being based on lies. There was still something very, very true in the connection between the two of them. And what happens going forward? 
we'll have to wait and see. And of course, we'll largely depend on which of the two of them or if they both actually survive this story. But I really love the juxtaposition of this scene to the one that immediately followed as we are introduced to the the Skrull who has been who has assumed the identity of Rhodey. And before we get into and of course, that leads to an interaction with uh, Skrull Rhodey or Rhodey Skrull and uh, and Nick Fury. But first, we actually get this Skrull by herself. So we see a Skrull woman taking a shower. We see her rubbing her own skin and enjoying, as, as the Skrulls have been talking about, a home in my own skin. We see her actually just enjoying being herself. And then as she wipes away the condensation in the mirror, revealing that this is now Rhodey, that this is the Skrull who has assumed Rhodey's identity. I just love what that says. And there's the look on Rhodey's face back in that mirror when she has to look back at the man in the mirror. She's not happy about it. There's this brief moment, this brief escape of all alone in the shower, I get to be myself, but now I have to go back to pretending I am this other person, which you could say that's about the strategy, that's about the mission. Sure, there's that part of it, but for this scroll whose name is Raba, according to the credits, I think what, and Raba played by Nisha Alia, I think what we really see, though, is feeling the necessity of this, and that's what makes her sad, and that's what is the this rare moment of, this very brief moment to have this empathy for an antagonist, the antagonistic Rhodey, who is so cold and sinister when talking about killing Nick Fury or a couple of weeks ago firing Nick Fury. We've had a very antagonistic point of view for this scroll up until this point, but again, trying to understand where the antagonist is coming from and how this person, how this scroll, she can't be herself. And I think it's a, we've had this language and we've had these moments being talked about, but this is just a moment where they're just showing it of here's the being completely at peace and comfortable with yourself and then literally gets wiped away and you have to go back to being who you have to present yourself to the world as just in order to be able to survive. So that little moment I thought was really, really great. And then when we get into the actual meeting, because Fury has visited or rather broke into Rhodey's hotel suite, the reason why I like this scene juxtaposed with the one we just saw is they both play on the same thing, you know, minus the love between Fury and, and Vara slash Priscilla. But it still has this these false pretenses. It still has this air of being trying to be cheerful when everybody when both sides of the conversation know that's not really what's happening here and Fury talking being all happy to present Rhodey with a bottle of, of Pappy Van Winkle and like, let's have a drink together. Let's bury the hatchet, all of those things. And that's really not what any of this is about. But I, I love that in this spy game, spy genre type of show that we have to have these conversations with the characters who are not talking about what they need to be talking about because they actually can't because they're on these opposing sides. And even the way they play with it, like Rhodey, when Fury passes Rhodey the drink, Rhodey asking, should I, should I be worried about poison? And Fury said, Fury laughs it off, says, no, but nano trackers, and that's a joke, even though that's real. The liquid tracking is there in the drink that uh, that Fury has served to Rhodey, I thought was a lot of fun. And then when Fury just goes into full conspiracy mode, but then says what he actually knows. There are scrolls inside the U.S. government, very close to the president, as close as you and I are right now, closer 
So there's the accusation without the accusation. Fury is telling Rhodey, I know that you're a Skrull, and all Fury wants in order to keep this a secret is Fury wants his job back. But this Rhodey is prepared for Fury's blackmail with a blackmail of her own with video footage of, obviously, Gravik posing as Fury shooting Maria Hill back in the first episode. I thought this scene was a lot of fun. As I mentioned before, I really like Scroll Rhodey or Rava Rhodey, maybe we could call her. I really love the way, and Don Cheadle, uh, in the way he performs this, I love that he's found another character in this. And I, I love that the more the more we dive into this character and the more this character gets to be more of herself and not necessarily the identity that she assumed, I love that Don Cheadle, as the performer, is now showing a, a totally different side. And the more, sp- the more time we spend with this version of Rhodey, the clearer, it just becomes that much more clear that we see the difference and we see how this, in fact, is not James Rhodes. Again, for most people, has to go ahead and, and act like James Rhodes, but where this version is letting the guard down a little bit, especially in the conversation with Priscilla, in the conversation now with Fury, once Fury has kind of shown that what he actually knows about this Rhodey and the fact that Rhodey is, in fact, a scroll. I love all of this. It's like the, these two characters in this scene are showing their cards while pretending that they're still uh, that they're still hiding them, and it just makes the scene a, a lot of fun. And so it's it's a totally different experience than the scene between Fury and Rhodey in uh, in the last large uh, interaction we had between the two of them in the second episode, but still another really good one. Yeah, I I personally feel that um, this was. This was a really inter- fun thing to see Don Cheadle kind of play a different character, and I, I, that's the one thing I would say about Secret Invasion. It definitely gives uh, actors like himself uh, an opportunity to kind of do something different within the MCU, not just play the same old character. Because you know, the characters—it's hard, even even for these characters, Sean. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, "How much character development can you have in a, in a superhero comic?" Which I have debated, and will still debate. And the same goes for, you know, I will say the same thing for the films, but for the most part, there is an, there's a core, right? There's a core part of the character that you have to stay within that range of. And it's cool to have an actor like Don Cheadle get to stretch his legs out and do something a little bit different and not just do the same old, same old, right? And that's, that's really refreshing, I think, for the actor. And I think it's cool that even though I'm not the biggest shapeshifter person, I think it, it's cool to see them do something different in this in this uh, whole thing. Which, by the way, the reveal of, of the uh, the reveal of of a scroll being a female was is, it was an interesting one because it weren't again I just wasn't expected. I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's cool. It's a different it's a different dynamic. Yeah, I mean, and, Talos briefly assumed the identity of a woman on the train back in the second episode, but we haven't necessarily right. seen a scroll in a long-term sense, assume the identity of somebody in a different gender. Yeah. Which again, it, I don't want to put too much emphasis on it. I just want to say it just, it's, it goes against what traditional writing would probably would do, which I, I like. I was like, Oh, that's a pleasant surprise. That's an, that's cool. It's a cool dynamic to go on. So I like that. So yeah, this was all good stuff for me. Again, Cheadle freaking Jackson, enough said right i mean it's like i can watch them like just hang out and talk about the phone book you know and read up you know whatever i mean it'd be amazing so it was great to see these two people uh, interact with each other yeah and of course we also don't necessarily know the intricacies of of gender within scroll culture anyway but yeah i, I think that sure. that 
seeing that revelation with uh, as the the more meaningful part of the revelation for me is not just it's not just that this was you know a, a female scroll. It's that this is somebody who it it really is more of the the isolated intimacy for this character of like there's there's a part of her experience here that seems very relatable that you can tap into and, and find that empathy for as an audience member, even as you, and it's, it's really important, I think, to take that moment and show that right before you once again, put it in like the, the a-hole roadie mode of here's the roadie who's just in the way, standing in the way of Nick Fury and was trying to get Nick Fury killed earlier on in this episode. These are things we don't like as fans of Nick Fury, our protagonist in this series, but Showing the antagonist's point of view, I think this show has routinely done a very good job of that, and this is one of my uh, certainly one of my favorite examples of it. But then, uh, in terms of how long, we might as well spend a, a little bit of time on that. How long has Rhodey been a scroll? Well, in an interview with Marvel.com, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige did say that we will come to understand exactly how long Rhodey's been a scroll, and. Feige even said, quote, we like the idea of fans going back and watching some of the other appearances of Rhodey and realizing that wasn't him, end quote. So that is a reveal from Feige, which is fair game because it's on Marvel.com as an interview. So it would appear, based on Feige's quote there, Paul, that the revelation is not going to be that Rhodey has just been a scroll for this appearance, that the previous appearances of Rhodey would also be a scroll, And we start thinking about more recent appearances like in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Obviously, he was a part of, of that show briefly. I don't know, though. I mean, how far would you even want them to go back on this, Paul? Like, I don't even really like the idea of that not being Rhodey in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Like, I like that being a moment between the real Rhodey and the real Sam. Mm -hmm. And not to say that a scroll can't find a way to relate to Sam in that moment, but... I don't know. It's I, I don't know about the backdating or what about the moment where Rhodey is saying goodbye to Tony right as Tony's about to die at the end of Avengers Endgame. Are we going all the way back to Endgame or even before that? I don't want him to go too far back, Paul, in terms of how long Rhodey has been a scroll. And I know everyone always goes back to ever since after Iron Man 1 because Terrence Howard switched to Don Cheadle in Iron Man 2. No, because the scroll would make Rhodey look the same. So it doesn't matter. We're not assuming that change of appearance had anything to do with scrolls. That was just a recasting. That's it. So I don't know how far back I really want him to go. I would say as, as little as possible in, in my view. But it, I, I'm glad that we will at least get an answer. According to, according to Feige in charge of all this, it, it sounds like we will at least get an answer before this series is done. Yeah, I to kind of go back to the comic books a little bit, there was a reveal... Which I, I won't reveal. The, I don't like spoiling things at all. So I'm, I'm just going to say there's a major reveal in the Secret Invasion comic series um, where they retroactively do what they're implying with Rhodey here. Well, they, they go way back mm -hmm. and, and say a character was a scroll. And there are some big implications with that, even bigger than what this one would be, in my opinion. Um which again, I don't want to go into it. Which I'm, which I'm reading about currently in a comic series right now. Which I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. How much I hated that. Um, I hate that. I got to tell you right now, I hate that. A little bit, that's fine. Falcon Winter Soldier, come on, man. Like, don't, don't do that. Just have it be quick and easy. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I'm not for it. I hate it. Don't do it. A little bit's fine. No. 
don't do it. Don't do it, please. Yeah, well, I mean, Falcon Winter Soldier was the last appearance before this one. So literally, if there's any story, if there's any appearance for us to go back on and realize it's uh, it wasn't Rhodey, then it, it has to at least be that one. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, yeah, in general, this was kind of something I was always rooting against, was hoping would not happen as part of Secret Invasion, that we would have a character we loved and find out that for some significant chunk of time and go back and alter previous movies or series or previous stories and say that wasn't really them i think then you'll have to really go into a different way of kind of examining the questions of identity and who's really who and whatever but i don't know well at this point i'll have to reserve i i have a lot of concerns about this but i'll reserve any final judgment until we get that explanation since it sounds like we will at some point in this series so i'll i'll reserve any additional comments on that for when that episode actually occurs and it's going to be one of the next two presumably where we get that answer because there are only two left well anyway after this meeting so fury tries to blackmail uh rava Rodi. rava Rodi has their own blackmail for fury so it's a it appears to be a stalemate but fury really did have nano trackers or rather a liquid location tracker inside that bottle of pappy van winkle so they are tracking uh, Rava Rhodey's whereabouts. And so um, also in the process of having this afternoon drinking, Fury has managed to embarrass Skrull Rhodey when uh, Skrull Rhodey is in front of President Ritson and Ritson smells the bourbon on Skrull Rhodey's breath, uh, suggesting a large coffee for the road for the colonel, uh, who then Ro Skrull Rhodey also asks for a mint. But Skrull Rhodey is carrying out Gravik's plan calling in the location of the president, the Citadel, or president's vehicle within the motorcade. So Gravik launches his attack. Fury and Talos obviously already in pursuit because of the liquid location tracker. They head into the fray, and it is a kill zone, as Talos says. It is a firefight, and we hear that the U.S. is buying it. The plan is working. They do believe that they are under attack from the Russians. Fury and Talos arrive to help. Gravik goes full Groot when he realizes, not full Groot, but he starts unleashing his, his Groot powers. We've seen him use extremist powers. Now we see him use Groot powers once he's alerted to the presence of Talos and Fury. And then Fury and Talos are trying to get the president out because the president is still alive at this point during the attack and is still alive presumably by the end of this attack. As they're trying to get the president out, Talos steps in to use his superior strength, but then... Pagan, under orders from Gravik, shoots Talos, and that injury causes his scroll form to start to show. One of the British soldiers, because the British soldiers have also arrived in this firefight, one of them sees the scroll, Talos, and looks like he's ready to shoot, and then Fury vouches for Talos, and they get to continue on. Fury is able to extract the president, and then that British soldier from earlier says that they're to put the president in his car, but Fury has his own ride. That soldier proceeds to help Talos, so it looks like Talos' vision is going to come true. Somebody saw Talos' act of bravery trying to save the president, and now that person in turn is going to save Talos. But no, that soldier now is really Gravik, who then stabs and kills Talos right in front of Nick Fury. Fury, who's already shot Gravik once, because being the soldier who refused to put Talos down, Fury shoots Gravik again and sees the extremist powers and then Pagan gets Gravik out of there. Fury gets the president out of there, leaving behind a fallen and appearing to be very dead Talos. As an action scene, I thought this was really good, Paul. I mean, if we were talking about 
TV versus movies. This felt very cinematic. This felt very cinematic to me. This felt like it would have fit in a movie as far as I was concerned. It was very intense. It was very visceral. And in addition to the action being just just looking really cool and being compelling, I think the drama felt big. I really liked the heroism of Talos, especially after he was shot and struggling and still doing all that he could to try and save the president. And then Samuel L. Jackson selling the devastation of Nick Fury. There is a spot that some people have clocked where it kind of looks like they show the same shot twice. Like Fury, it's it, if it's not the exact same shot, although one of them looks like the, you know, the, the framing is a little different. The camera's a little more pushed in, but similar takes of Fury has a very similar reaction to when Talos is stabbed to when he finds, when he sees that Gravik has uh, extremist powers. So that part looked a little funky um, in the edit, but I still think as far as the drama of it, that part really, really worked. Um, so from Fury's relationship and his friendship with Talos, I buy the drama of that. And that part of it was compelling for me. But this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show in terms of the MCU and having to consider its relationship with death. And, and, as, a, and as I also said, Secret Invasion's own relationship, specifically just this series, that relationship with death with Three out of the four episodes so far ending in a character death, one of those being undone at the very beginning of this episode. So there is always kind of that question for these these sequences, these moments. Is this one for real? And in the case of Talos, it's probably for real. It's probably for real because there's no reason to believe that Talos had any access to or knowledge of, this, of how to get himself the Super Scroll powers, right? Gaia obviously had access to it, so we knew when she was killed that this was something that she could go and that that may have or she may have already preemptively saved herself. There's no reason to really expect that for Talos. And given the the way the meeting between Talos and Gaia ended, there's no reason to suspect that Gaia helped out Talos in, in any sort of way, or even if she could, since she wasn't there at New Skrullos anymore. So there's not really a way on paper for us to already see that Talos would have saved himself in advance. So it does seem like this is a death that would actually stick. But it is still harder, though, for that death to have meaning when we always kind of have these questions that accompany each and every instance just because of the way deaths are done and, and undone at times in the MCU, which, as I said before, I haven't really bumped up against in the MCU. I think it's just the pacing and the way these things have all come together in, in such short succession in this series of where maybe it's a little different for me in this uh, in this set of instances within Secret Invasion. And I'm really just trying to avoid, I don't want to have the comic book level of, of cynicism. Like, Paul, I, I can certainly understand where you come from with it. And generally in comic books, I don't necessarily bump up against it and I can be fine with it. I just don't want to feel that way in the MCU. Because like you said, Death does have to mean something, and it, it does have to be permanent in some instances because these actors are not going to play these characters forever because you can't just draw them the same age over and over again. And I know at this point somebody can scream, well, what about AI and what about de-aging? Okay, fine. So there are some tools, although I don't want, I, I really don't want AI performances in the MCU. So Whoa. if we're looking outside of that, I mean, even with de-aging, that's still, there are still limits to a lot of these things, right? And so... The stories can't go on forever. They can't just have this perpetual status quo that is renewed over and over again, as we often see in comics. And also, don't just see that as a disadvantage of here's a thing we can't do that the comic books can. 
use it to use it within your storytelling as an advantage. We can have certain things happen and have more permanent changes, including characters dying or being removed or whatever. We can have that in these stories because we need to have that in these stories. So let's do that as let's use that as a storytelling advantage rather than viewing it as a disadvantage. But you undermine that if you really start to give the audience a, a relationship with death within your set of stories where there's just always the question of, is it for real this time? I think it is for Talos, but just the fact that we were asking that question on such a regular basis shows the MCU probably needs to reconsider its relationship with death. Certainly this show, I, I really hope episode five is not another character death. I don't want to go four for five in terms of uh, ending cliffhangers being a character dying at the end of an episode. So it's just something for this show, but also in a broader sense, the MCU. But then outside of that, outside of the MCU and or outside of the the relationship that the MCU and its audience has with death, there's another part about this that doesn't necessarily work for me. So when we talk about this being our least favorite episode, in, in classic Sean and Paul fashion, this is each of our <laughs> least favorite episodes, but for different reasons. So Paul already <laughs> outlined kind of what his reason was for it being his least favorite. I think it's pretty apparent why this one's my least favorite, but just to add on to it a little bit more, the timing of Talos's death, within a three-act structure... You would say that if you divide it evenly, end of episode four is the end of act two, which is typically when the worst thing happens or when some really awful things ha thing happens. So Fury watching Talos be killed right in front of him certainly qualifies as one of the worst things imaginable happening to our main protagonist. So this would be the time for that to happen. So I get it on that level. But at the same time, we still have two episodes left. The friendship between Fury and Talos has been a huge part of the appeal of this series, for me at least. And while they didn't necessarily have any long scenes together here, and Talos did get to speak his truth to Fury last week, I'm glad that all of those things have already happened before Talos died. But it's still just going to be interesting to me. And I, I am wondering how much I'm going to love. I, I expect that I'll still be a fan of the show over the last two episodes. But I am going to be interesting to see how this series proceeds without... Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, because I thought he was just a huge breakout hit and surprise in Captain Marvel. And I've loved watching him in this series and the friendship between Fury and Talos, as I said, has been a huge part of what I've enjoyed so much about this show so far. And maybe we'll still see Talos in other scenes in the form of flashbacks or whatever. But I am definitely I feel like I'm going to miss Talos in these last two episodes. And it'll be just it's not me saying pre like I, I already know I'm not going to like the last two episodes. I have no idea how I'm going to feel about them. And then there are a lot of other characters I like and I'm interested in seeing their stories continue. And but clearly other characters are going to have to step up. Obviously, I presume Gaia is going to be a huge, huge part of that. But it will be something I'll be interested to see uh, starting next week of just how how they're going to compensate for the loss of Talos because he's been a, a pretty great character in the MCU and then and obviously more specifically in in this story. So be very interesting to see how it carries on without him. Yeah, um, I, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised he died this early in the series. Yeah, I did not expect honest. him to survive the show. I'm just surprised it happened in four instead of maybe five or six. Right, and, and the fact that we've gotten this... Uh, right after his daughter quote unquote dies. It's like, again, this is, 
this is probably where I'm like, not the best decision to put his death right here. But I wanted to, you know, one of the things I wanted to really highlight about the sh- the series um, or the show specifically was the fact that you had uh, a great action sequence. And this definitely felt cinematic to me. This whole action action sequence felt uh, very, very cinematic and felt good. It's, it's a good action sequence. And I think that, uh, again, it, it was well, it was well earned, I thought, Um Again, the show has, has been fine with the action department for me. Maybe a little bit more would be nice, but like I'm not, I'm not like oh my god, you know. But I, I will say it was a it was a welcome one to have. It was great to see. I will also wonder right now: is it kind of like the Infinity Gauntlet, Sean, the Super Scrolls, where it can only use one power at a time, or were they are they going to be able to do Super Scroll classic? Super Scroll FF character where it's got the thing arm and the, you know, and the human torch legs. And the, yeah, I presume you know? they can I, I presume they can combine it, but probably like the Infinity Stones, it consumes more energy. Like, you know, mm-hmm. just like if you use all the stones at once, like for Thanos, like that's what really screwed him up was using all six at once. I mean, he, you can combine them, but it probably uses more energy but we we still need to see the other powers come into play like we're not really seeing call obsidian or the or the frost beast for example so like we know those are out there but the the biggest visual demonstrations have been extremis and and group but to your point paula i i I gotta feel like you're gonna see him combined like because that's how do you escalate it for graphic like we've already seen him use extremis we've already seen him use the group power so I, I presume in like the final battle, we'll probably see some shot of Gravik where he's using all of them at once. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I, I think so too. They're probably it's probably a visual effects thing, is what I was probably getting at. To be honest, is you kind of feel the limitations there. Well, we can't do it all at once. It's too expensive. Well, we again, can just it. not not a lot. Thank you. Yeah, can't exactly. do it all That's- at once all the time. Yeah, and, and I think, and I, I like your reasoning there. I think there's, that's cool. And I think that you have to have, because I mean, let's be real. Like if, if he could just do that on the reg, he just would, he'd be really hard to bring down. <laughs> let's bring it, let's, let's say what, you know, how it is too. So having it more limit, having, giving him more limits gives it, it does give everyone a little more, more of a chance. So I'll say that as well. Yeah, I think so. But uh, overall, for this episode, again, I clearly had some things I bumped up against that put this in as my least favorite of the four. But I think what you have also heard and decided to me ranting slash whining about death in the MCU, which, again, normally I haven't had the same issues that a lot of people have had. But now I'm now I'm there, or at least for this series. I think you also heard me say a lot of things that I really liked about this episode. There continue to be a lot of positives and overall I think that the storytelling, the character development, the arcs for these characters have been really, really good. I, I think the way it's exploring its its themes, I think everything, I think so many of the elements that really count the most and certainly count the most, I think, for a lot of people and myself, I, I know for sure a lot of the things that are the biggest driving factors of how much I enjoy any story, but particularly stories within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I feel like more often than not, this episode or these episodes have re- including this one have really excelled in in those areas and so i've been very very happy with this series and i'm still very happy with this series after the first four episodes and very much looking forward to the final two i am curious where what direction we're headed in for 
runtime because they're getting shorter and shorter with this one being what, like 36 minutes or something like that. This one was really short and maybe that's Maybe the page count had to stay down because some of those pages were a big, expensive action sequence. And, I, and I'm fine with it. Nothing necessarily felt shortchanged in the episode. So I am okay with it. But um, yeah, I am interested to see where it's at. But runtime is ultimately just a number. It's just what do you do with the time that you have? And so far, they've, for the most part, with a couple of rare exceptions, they've made the most of the time that they've had in these first four episodes. And uh, I am very much... Uh, very, very, very excited about where things go from here. But that is where we will wrap up this edition of MCU Fan Show. Thanks so much for tuning in to this spoiler review. Make sure you check out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Follow us at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, threads, and Twitter. Don't forget to leave that Apple Podcast review if you have not already. If you have, thank you so much. Paul, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Herman 22 with two N's, AKA P thug. Also, please follow the comic binge on YouTube. Uh, please follow it on Twitter. Let's go ahead and subscribe to me on YouTube. Watch some videos. If you guys want to just go ahead and just, just hit a video, just mute it. Just let the, just the hours go by. Just get me, <laughs> give me those hours in there. I don't mind if, whatever works for you. I don't, whatever support I'll take it. Uh, I don't care. Um, but no, I pr- appreciate everyone who's, uh, who's supported the channel recently. Um, lots of fun stuff uh, coming up. We've got an interview with uh, my buddy Alex, who just wrote a great new book called uh, Understanding Superhero Comic Books, where it's literally the history of the medium into superhero comics. It's incredible. Super excited about that. And then the week after, uh, I've got uh, a buddy coming on. We're going to talk about Legion of Superheroes. And we're starting from like the OG beginning-ish area with Jim Shooter writing comic books as a 14-year-old and I'm not even joking. That is a 100% fact. Jim Shooter started writing comics, I think, at 14 years old. Uh, and it's crazy. And he created, like, four characters in his first story. <laughs> so lots of fun stuff there. That's the next two weeks. Uh, go ahead and uh, subscribe and check that out. It'll be a lot of fun. And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.